are actually um, in week two of a new series in which we're talking about some of the questions of Christmas. Is, um, questions are a big part of our life. Is if you think about um, some of your life's biggest decisions or the most impactful events in your life, uh, you can probably narrow them down to a question. A question in which you had to decide what you're going to do. And so for me, um, when I look back on some of the bigger uh, events of my life, um, I think back to maybe one of the first ones would be when I was 18, and I had to decide where I was going to go to college. Um, well, there was, uh, of course, a ton of different offers on the table because everyone wanted me to go to their school, uh, or not. But um, I did actually have a couple, and so I was trying to figure out, okay, where do I go? And, and, and I didn't understand that in that moment, the answer to that question would drastically change the trajectory of my life. Because one of the other things that happened after I answered that question, when I went to um, this university called Biola, which is where Jesus goes, um, <laughs> the next thing that, uh, the next big question was, um, I had to decide if I wanted to ask this young lady named Amy if she would marry me or not. And um, luckily I did, and luckily she said yes, and, um, and that was yet, that was probably the second biggest thing that happened in my life. And so the question there was to Amy, well, will you marry me? Will you spend the rest of your life with me? And then after that, I kind of decided, okay, once I graduated and I was married, the next big question, of course, was, well, what, what's my career going to be? What am I going to try and dedicate my entire work life toward? What is going to be the thing that consumes a majority of the hours in my life? And so I had to ask that question. And, and actually, for me, it was um, something that I wrestled with for many years. Was I going to do business or was I going to do ministry? And, and um, obviously, I decided on, on ministry. And so um, the last big question in my life up until this point was probably the question of, uh, that Amy and I discussed a number of years back, which was, well, are we going to have kids soon or not? Um, the question of if we were going to have kids was not a question. That was going to happen, according to Amy. Uh, but it was just when. When are we going to have kids? And she decided that for me as well. But um, <laughs> much of our life is really shaped by the questions that we ask and, of course, the answers to those questions and how we kind of live those uh, out. And so we're going to be asking a series of questions about the Christmas story. Um, we asked kind of what the point was last week, and we started to discuss that a little bit. Today, we're going to ask a different question, the question of, um, and it might be a little bit obscure, but I really think that the answer that we're going to get is going to tell us a lot about the Christmas story, which is, uh, why did Jesus come as a baby? Have you ever thought about that question? Why did Jesus come as a baby? Um, I, I understand that people prefer the eight-pound, six-ounce beautiful baby that is wrapped in golden fleece diapers and everybody loves that baby, okay? But like this, this child didn't have to be a child. Think about it. If Jesus is God incarnate, he did not have to come as a child. He could have just showed up. Miracle is kind of at the center of this Christmas story. And so it's not like he had to come as a child. He could have come as a fully grown adult with no belly button out of the desert and here he is. He just shows up, right? And that would have been kind of cool as well. But for some reason, God chose to send Jesus to us, and it was um, through the same process that all of us go through, which is birth all the way through adolescence and then adulthood. Why would God do that? It really is, if you think about it, kind of a straight, why would he come? Think about all that's in the balance in the world, right? And we understand God's in control, but why would he allow God, or why would he allow Jesus to come down as a child, and the more I learn about scripture and the more research that I do, um, I, I begin to realize that nothing that God does is arbitrary. God doesn't just like wing it, 
You know, he doesn't just think, you know what, this is a great time to send my son, and then like, ah, how are we going to do this? Ah, uh, I guess a baby. I don't know. Babies are cute. Let's try baby. You know, God does not do that. God does not do things arbitrarily. In fact, we find out that God has um, humanity planned from the beginning to the end, that he has this whole thing going in a certain direction, and he has thought about the entire thing and how it's going to, how it's going to happen. And so I want to ask the question of why Jesus came to earth as a child. It may seem like an odd question, but I think we're going to learn a lot from this. Okay, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 1 is where we're going to be for the first half. Matthew 1, and we're going to start at verse 18. And this is part of the Christmas story. You're probably familiar with it. starts at uh, verse 18. Here's what it says. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So right on the surface, we find a partial answer to our question of why Jesus came as a child. is because hundreds of years prior to Jesus' birth, uh, there was this prophet who came along, Isaiah, and he says, there is going to be a Messiah, there is going to be a Savior, and he is going to redeem the people of Israel, and he will be a child, okay? And so a part of Jesus coming as a child is because it's a fulfillment of prophecy, that that the Messiah would come as a child, but this kind of just pushes the question back a little bit, right? Because prophecy is something that God says, and so he didn't have to prophesy, he didn't have to speak through Isaiah in order to have this prophecy that there's going to be a child. He could have said, there will be a man with no belly button who will come out of the woods, and he will save his people, okay? So he, Isaiah could have said anything that God told him to say. So I think part of the answer might be, and we kind of have to guess a little bit here, but it seems like part of the answer could be because uh, Jesus needed to live a complete human life in order to redeem us. Is that in order to conquer sin, he had to experience all the temptations of the various life stages that we go through. Think about some of the hardest times it is being a Christian, a teenager. For me, that was like the most difficult time was adolescence into early adulthood. Is that when, that's when it feels like there's the most temptation. That's when it feels like I'm the most naive about the world and I'm pulled towards doing really stupid things. And so Jesus, in order to um, fulfill, uh, in order to live the perfect life, he had to live a full life. He had to be fully committed to being um, both God and both man. He could have just come and like same day, here I am out of the woods, crucify me, here we go. But no, 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 that wouldn't fulfill uh, that wouldn't fulfill the, the requirements of living a perfect life. And so on one hand, I think that that is partially an answer, but I think that there's something even deeper than that. And that's what really I want to focus on today is. I want to explore this question a little bit more of why Jesus would come as a child. And I think the reason and the answer to this, and we'll kind of uh, explore this more, is Christ came as a child to show us a pattern. Christmas is actually about a pattern. It's a pattern that started at Christmas and we are at the birth, and we see it all the way through Jesus' life and eventual death and resurrection. 
is he's showing us a pattern. And the pattern that he's showing us is how we, as believers, can live in God's kingdom here and now. So let me back up a little bit. Is, um, there's these two kingdoms. And the way that, uh, one of the reasons why I'm a Christian is because when I look at different parts of the world, I look at different parts of humanity and, and different things that we do and we think and we believe, Christianity, to me, seems to have the most coherent and consistent answers about why we do what we do and why the world is the way that it is. I don't think there's any other worldview that can explain why things are the way that they are like Christianity does. And so one of those observations I've had recently is that we, uh, as humans, naturally divide ourselves into groupings. Like we naturally find cliques and groups and things like that that we are a part of. And then in these groups, we kind of establish common values. And then we have levels of authority within that group. Okay, so uh, I shared last week that there's this new show that I'm watching called The 100. It's on Netflix. And um, The 100 is really interesting because it's this post-apocalyptic kind of world that people are living in. And it, so it's 100 years after a nuclear war and there's various survivors that are there, like second and third generation survivors. And what happens is all the survivors, although there's not like a, a huge number of them, they have divided themselves into different tribes and then they have different rulers of those tribes. And the reason why um, the, I would assume the reason why the, the creators of the show chose this as the starting point after humanity has to start over is because this is kind of what we do, right? There's no, there's no, uh, there's no place on the earth in which it's just a bunch of nomads, you know, just a bunch of people who walk around and are like, I'm flying solo, you know, just me and me, you know, like, that's not how we work. We clump up into these groupings, and then within these groupings, we kind of have different layers of authority. We have either people, a specific ruler, or we have groups of rulers in which they kind of govern, and they have the authority and the power over the group. Now, this is not a profound observation by any means. This is pretty uncontrovertible. Uh, most of us would say, yes, that makes sense. And in fact, even the more complex societies, like the one that we live in, nations, uh, it's really the same principle, is we have gathered a large number of people, and we have common values and goals in mind, and we also have different uh, systems of authority or layers of authority in which they have power to govern over and to make decisions for the group, right? This is just how humanity works. Now, Here's my question, is why are we like that? Why are we like that? Now, we could get into the evolutionary explanation of why we're like that and everything, but let me just deduce a couple of learnings I think we can have. Because I think, although there are various explanations of why we're like this, Christianity is going to give us the best. So here's what I mean. First learning I have when I think about this is um, that we can't live in isolation, that we're highly, highly relational beings. We can't be nomads, we can't live by ourselves. We have to be around people. And, we ha and it's not just a survival thing, it's a relational thing. There's something intuitive within us in which we have to be in relationships. Even if they're not super beneficial to our own survival, we have to be in these relationships. And the other thing is, is, and this is the more controversial claim, is every person in this world ultimately lives under the authority of someone or something. Now, just let that, just think about that for a moment. Everybody in the world, will submit to and live under the authority of something or someone. It's just something about it that we cannot avoid. It doesn't matter how much we want to be in charge of our own lives, how much we want to be the, our own authority and take, uh, take commands from nobody. There's something within us that continues to submit to the control of something else. So let me give you a couple examples. Is 
as Americans, we desire freedom, and freedom for us means autonomy, that we can do what we want to do. But that idea is a myth, that there's no way for it to happen, because here's what will happen is eventually something will rule over you. Either you will try to be the authority of your own life, and what will end up happening is um, you will end up either making very poor decisions as the authority in your life, which I think we all can attest to, or you will end up becoming a slave to something in your life, particularly one of your desires, is you will end up bowing down to your career or, your, or, or, or money or beauty or pleasure or even your relationship. Something will eventually grab hold of you, and it's as if you have no control over your life because you have to pursue this thing or this person. Your desires seem to take over even the, even the control you have over your life. Or, if you are not the ultimate authority in your life, you will make someone or a group of someones the ultimate authority in your life. See, um, there's a famous quote, and you probably all heard of it, Lord Acton says, absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's an interesting theological belief behind this, is the idea is that if you give someone the authority, the ultimate authority of your life or over a group of people, that power will corrupt them. They will make very poor decisions. They will either disappoint the people or they will end up destroying the people. And we see this throughout history. I mean, how many tyrants and dictators do we need to watch do this to finally realize, you know, it's a bad idea to give someone the authority over our lives, like ultimate authority. And here's the theological belief behind this. It's the idea that all of us are not naturally good, but we are naturally evil, and so when someone who is naturally evil, that's all of humanity, gets all this ultimate power, they end up destroying the people. See, so our secular society wants to dismiss um, some of the theological implications that America was founded upon, but the idea of democracy and the idea that um, we have these various checks and balances within our government is founded upon the biblical idea that man is born sinful, that we have a healthy suspicion of other people. That's why we have various uh, groups represented and that will keep other groups and, and what they value and what they want in check. Because we know that you and I are evil. And so if we get all the power, we're going to defeat or we're going to destroy or we're going to oppress a different group that is not us. And so democracy is actually a pretty good idea because it says, okay, uh, we have a suspicion of the rest of humanity, and so we're going to take this power and we're going to disperse it amongst a bunch of people so that no one has the ability to do that. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect. In fact, uh, Winston Churchill summarizes uh, democracy best like this. He says, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. I love that. Because the whole idea, there's these theological implications that we have this desire for there to be authority, and then if we gain all the power and authority, we will end up destroying ourselves and the people. And we even see this, and if, uh, democracy is definitely not perfect, and it has its, its failures and its ups and downs. In fact, uh, I was reading this article, and it's kind of embarrassing. It was uh, about a lady who, she's a single mom, and she was uh, voting for Clinton, and because Clinton lost, she has lost the desire to get married. 
which I was like, that's kind of a stretch, you know, like, wow, that's kind of a big, oh, that's a big leap right there. And she's like, I, she's like, I'm not dating anymore. I've lost faith in humanity because, and I'm like, okay, well, first of all, you have put a lot of trust in some politicians, okay? There was your first problem right there. And if you thought that there was going to be a politician who was going to save you, that you were going to have this God king who was going to come and make everything better, you have misplaced your trust. Because just like the founding fathers and just like other great leaders, um, we have to realize that it doesn't matter how good a government or how good a group is or a leader is, they're always going to fail us because at the end of the day, we're broken. We're messed up people. And so here's a couple learnings that I had is... um, we cannot get away from the fact that we have to live within a group. And I'm going to term this as a, as a kingdom, that every single person has to be a citizen or member of a kingdom, and we have to have an authority over us. So here's the question, why are we like this? And I think the best explanation for why we have these desires and these intuitions is because it's a pointer to the God who made us and what he's like. See, this desire matches perfectly with what the, the scripture describes uh, about ourselves and about God. Because it says that God is not just a person, but it is three persons in one Godhead. Now, this is going to get a little technical. I'm not going to lie. We're going to go to theology, like 201, 301 for about five minutes. Then you can tune back in. Okay, here's, the, here's what it tells us, the scripture. It tells us that the reason why we desire to be in community and in these relationships is because God is three persons that has been in relationship for eternity past. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been in relationship, loving one another for eternity past. And then as creatures made in his image, we have to be in relationships. If we are made by a God who is in a relationship, we, as his creation, reflection of him, have to be in relationship as well. Now, here's where it gets even deeper, is within the Godhead, and track with me here, okay? We're going to go deep for like three minutes, and then we're going to, whoo, we're going to run away. Okay, here we go. Within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is a hierarchical structure within the Godhead. Okay, here we go. All right, follow me. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal, okay? So they are all God. They are one God in the Godhead, three persons, one God, all equal. But here's what's different, is they each play a different role, and there is a hierarchy within the Godhead. And so we see this in Scripture. It says that the Father and the Son are equal, but the Son submits to the authority of the Father. So we see things like uh, the Father sent the Son into the world. How does the Father send the Son into the world? Because in this structure, the Father or the Son submits to the Father. Now, um, the best illustration that I could come up with this to kind of make sense of this and not get um, any heretical beliefs in the group is is this: is um, my it would be like my dad and me. And again, don't take this analogy too far. Okay, I'm just trying to show you equality and different roles. Is uh, my dad and I are both humans. And so therefore we have the same uh, value, that we are infinitely valuable because we are made in God's image. Great, we get that. That's like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God, all equally valuable. However, my role differs from my father's role here at the church. My dad gets to tell me what to do and I have to do it for the most part. And see, his role is different than my role, although we are equal in value and we are equal in personhood, uh, we vary in our roles here at the church. Okay, exit out of deep theology, back to practical. Okay, so ultimately, uh, 
this Godhead, this three-in-one, is a pointer. It's a pointer to why we need to be in relationships and why we need authority in our life. Because there is relationship in the Trinity and there is authority and there's a hierarchy within the Trinity. And so the reason why we need to be in these relationships and we need to have these authorities over us is because we were made uh, in the image of a God who has that as well. And so the scripture goes on to uh, kind of say that um, the world is really divided into two categories. So the way that we think about the world is we probably think of the world as being divided into different nations, right? Maybe even um, the, the West and the East, or we think about all the nations that are represented, and that's the way that we kind of divide the world, is we think of the world geographically like that. But what's interesting is the scripture does not divide the world like that. The scripture divides the world into really two categories, and it labels these as kingdoms. It says there is the kingdom of the world, and then there is the kingdom of God. And no matter what race you are, it doesn't matter when you live, that you could have lived a thousand years ago, it doesn't matter uh, your age, it doesn't matter your, your socioeconomic status, everybody is going to live in one of these two kingdoms here on earth. They're going to live in the kingdom of, of God, or they're going to live in the kingdom of the world. And so let's talk about the kingdom of the world for a moment here. The kingdom of the world, as described in the scriptures, is kind of like the kingdom of now, the kingdom of now is we are concerned about our natural desires, our wants. We're really about ourselves and what we want right now. As I was studying for this message tonight, I did this uh, little mental exercise in which I wanted to observe uh, what primarily the things that I thought about in maybe a 30-minute period. You know what I thought about almost exclusively for 30 minutes? Myself. It all revolved around me, okay? It was all about me and what I want and why I'm upset about this and why I think maybe I thought about somebody else, but it was really how they made me feel, and so I don't even think that counts, you know? Like, if, I, if you track throughout the day and you observe your thought process, I will almost guarantee that 99% of it is going to revolve around you. And that's because we live and we were born into, and our natural disposition is to live in the kingdom of now, to live in the kingdom where it's all about our wants and our desires. And the way that you win in this kingdom, the values of this kingdom, is about power and pleasure and comfort and wealth and success and fame. See, there's, every kingdom values different things. Every nation values different things. Every group of people, every leader values different things. And the scripture talks about what the value system is in the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of now. And some of the values of this kingdom is being rich. You know that you have made it, that you have been, become successful in this kingdom if you have material wealth or about being powerful. You are in charge. You can tell people what to do and they respect you. Or maybe about fame. Somebody knows who you are. You are a somebody. You're not a nobody. People recognize you. Or even just pleasure. Life is about having fun and whoever has the most fun at the end of the day wins. And of course, if these are our values, we want to avoid any weakness or sacrifice or grief or being excluded in any way. And so those are the values of the kingdom of, of now, the values of the kingdom of, uh, of the world. And if you look at popular culture, they paint this picture all the time. See, popular culture continues to affirm, here's what we value, here's what our world is about. And so if you look at music, um, I have yet to find a rapper who brags about driving a semi-used Kia, <laughs> right? Like, I'm financially responsible, and so I drive a Kia, yo. You know, like, no one says that, right? Like, I know, you thought, you're like, wow, where did he learn to rap like that? That's fantastic. I know, it's good. Um, 
But like no one says that, right? Like you've never seen a music video where they're like, oh my gosh, look at how, you know what, they're fiscally responsible, good for them. You know, like they're really going somewhere. Their career, oh, good. Like that never happens, right? Like that, it, it never happens. And on a more serious note, the people who are on the news all the time, the people who opinions we care about, it's never the person who has dedicated their life to feeding kids in Africa. Have you noticed that? It's never like, oh, TMZ is tracking now the missionary in Uganda. It's like, no, 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 no. We care about what are the good-looking people doing? What are the movie stars up to? What are they? Why? Because these are the people that uh, we value. These are the people that we deem successful within our society. See, it's natural to us to think that the whole point of life is to be rich and successful and good-looking and have great experiences and avoid any kind of grief or any kind of pain. Why? Because that's the value system in the kingdom of now, in the kingdom of the world. But see, Christmas is about the introduction of, or the arrival of a new kingdom, a new way to live. See, the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, is saying the old kingdom is failed. There's a new way to be human. There's a new way for you to live. There's a new kingdom that you can be a part of. And it doesn't matter how much money or success or pleasure or recognition you get, it will never give you the thing that you're truly looking for. The old kingdom is failing. Because what you and I are really looking for is we're looking for satisfaction and fulfillment. We just want to sit there and go, I'm good. We're all desiring this thing. There's something out there. We just, if we just get it, if we could just get there, and so we go for the money, and we go for the, the whatever we think is going to bring us that fulfillment and satisfaction, and Jesus comes along and he goes, that's never going to get you there. That kingdom isn't going to take you to where you want to go. And so you could say that, the, that Christmas is kind of the dawning of a new era. The new era is there's a new way to be human. There's a new authority to live under. There's a new king. There's a new kingdom that you can be a part of. And dawn, it's kind of interesting. Dawn, if you think about it, it's like, it's not night, but it's not day. It's kind of in between, right? And that's really what's happening here, is we have the old kingdom that's still present, and we have the new kingdom that has arrived, and yet they're both kind of still here. And what this means for us is we get to decide which kingdom we want to live within. Do we want to live within the kingdom of now, the kingdom of the world, or this new kingdom, the kingdom of God? See, we get to decide what we're going to live in. And here's the other thing. As Christians we can actually do something kind of weird, is we can proclaim our allegiance to Jesus and yet still, and and be citizens of the kingdom of God and yet still actively live in the kingdom of now, right? I I mean, this makes sense, is you can be a United States citizen, that's where your citizenship is, and yet you can go live in Canada, right? You can be a citizen of one kingdom but live in another kingdom, And that's what a lot of us do, right? Is we're citizens of God's kingdom. We have given our lives over to Christ and yet we continue to live in the kingdom of now, the kingdom of here, the kingdom of the world. And so what Christmas does is it doesn't just show us how to become citizens in the new kingdom. It actually shows us a pattern for living in the new kingdom. How we can access the kingdom of God here and now. And we see this throughout the pattern of Jesus' life starting from day one. See, if we look at Even before Jesus is born, who God picks to bring the Savior into the world, we find out what this value system of the new kingdom is. You look at Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are the um, epitome of nobodies. They live in the backwoods somewhere. They're extremely poor, so poor they couldn't even afford a place to stay. 
They are literally nobodies. They're not powerful. They're not successful. They're not even married. These people are nobodies. These are the last people in the kingdom of now, that value system that you would choose to bring the Messiah to the world. And yet when this begins, when God picks this couple and this incredibly humble place and means in which he does it, he is showing us, and he shows us through the rest of Jesus' life that there is a total reversal of the expectations of what the king and the kingdom is going to look like. See, Jesus isn't born into royalty, but into a poor family that is rejected and a bunch of nobodies. He isn't born in a palace, but a grimy, dingy stable. The savior of the world didn't arrive in power and strength as the leader of an army or the ruler of a nation, but a poor and weak baby. Right from the beginning, God is setting a pattern for what it looks like to live in his kingdom. He says, and it's the exact opposite of the kingdom of the world. If the kingdom of the world is all about power, then you are to be weak. If the kingdom of the world is all about freedom, then you must submit your life. If the kingdom of the world is all about finding yourself, then you must lose yourself. It's an upside-down kingdom. See, Jesus is initiating this new kingdom. He says, everything that you know about the world is going to be turned upside down if you want to live in the kingdom of God. You have to become a rebel in which all the things that they pity, you now prize. And all the avoidance of weakness and grief and exclusion, you now embrace because it's going to bring you closer to your Savior. Now, let me clarify really quick. Is... When I talk about weakness and sacrifice and grief and exclusion, um, this, isn't, this isn't a thing. These aren't, these aren't values in the kingdom that we try to actively pursue, right? Like, we're not misogynists. And, or, or, uh, uh, misogynists? Masochists. Misogynists would be hating women. You guys don't even know. You guys, look, at that, look that up. Masochists. You guys don't even know the words. Why am I even worrying about it? Okay. You guys are like, yeah, I don't know. Whatever. That sounds good. Whatever. Well, yeah, sure. Um, masochists in which we enjoy pain, like we actively pursue pain because we're like really into it or something like that. No, 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 no. The whole point of the Christian life of experiencing grief is because we have followed Jesus. Did I hear a snort in the third row? <laughs> Amen to you. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, snort. All right. Thanks. Thanks for that. I'm going to go ahead and go to the next point now. Um... <laughs> Listen, here's the thing is being a Christian is not all about uh, trying to pursue grief and weeping and things like that. No, no, no. The whole idea is that um, we value these things if it's because we have chosen to follow Jesus and that is the result. Is if we had to pass up on a relationship and now we're bummed because we've missed out on this relationship so we experienced this, this, uh, this grief of a loss of a relationship but we did it because we knew that it was God honoring. See, that's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of now is to choose to continue to pursue the values and the desires that are, 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 are in the kingdom of God instead of continuing to fall into the pleasures of the kingdom of now. And it's not that like being successful is wrong. I actually hope that all you guys become super rich and you tithe a ton of money, right? <laughs> No, but seriously, like, I, I hope that you fulfill all your dreams and you do incredible things and God blesses you. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, my bigger, my bigger desire is for all of us to not care either way. 
Like to be good with, if God gives us an incredible amount of money, we go, sweet, I can use that to do some great things in the world. But if he doesn't, that's okay too, because that's not the point of my life. Like if I get to reach all of my dreams and do all the great things that I'm hoping to do, that will be awesome. And I hope that God uses me in that way. But if I don't, that's okay too, because that's not the point of my life. Because that's not the thing that is ultimately going to fulfill me. That I know that no matter how much pleasure and how much success and how much fame and how much money I may acquire and get to experience and have, none of those things are going to make me totally fulfilled and satisfied. See, my dream for us, and guys, I am so not even close to this. I find myself almost on a minute-by-minute basis having to go, Cody, you know that's not going to make you happy, right? You know that's not going to satisfy you, right? You know that you're not going to find fulfillment if you had that, but I'm like, but I really want to try, like, Lord, give me the opportunity to be rich and see that it sucks. You know, like, that's really, that's what I kind of, that's like, I, I, don't lie. Like, that's how most of us feel. We're like, yeah, I know money's not going to make me happy, but I'm willing to try. You know, I'm willing to give it a shot and see what happens. Uh, and I'll let you know if it works out or not. You know, the Christian, the, the living in God's kingdom now says, you know what, those things, I can take them or I can leave them. I'll be a good steward if God gives them to me, but I'm not going to be ruined because, if I don't, because I know that that's not ultimately what's going to fulfill me. And so here's the, the, the question that I want to answer uh, in our last couple of minutes here, is what is the thing that will finally fulfill us? What is the thing that we're all seeking? There's something about you and I that, that life is not okay. Life is not perfect. There are some, there's something in this fulfillment that we desire and we're trying, trying so hard to get a hold of it. What is the thing that's actually going to do it? And really quickly, in Luke 2, 25, this is uh, the second half of kind of the Christmas story. This is uh, shortly after Jesus' birth, about 40 days, where Jesus is going to be presented at the temple. Here's where I think we get insight into the thing that we're actually looking for. Here's what it says in 2, 25. It says, now there's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, meaning he he was waiting for the Messiah, and the Holy Spirit was born on him, uh, the Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus uh, to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, this is listen to this part, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. You may now dismiss your servant in peace, saying, you can let me die. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So what's happening here is Simeon is saying, I've lived a great life. I've got to do a whole lot of things. And yet, The reason why I can say that I will die a happy man, that I will die satisfied and fulfilled is because I finally got to meet the Messiah, the one in which we were all created to be in a relationship with, the one that is the only person that's going to be able to fulfill and give us the satisfaction that we are so trying to uh, grab hold of. Just for a moment, can can you imagine what that would feel like? Like, let me just paint just a real quick picture of what I just imagine this would be like, is can you imagine feeling this total peace and satisfaction in life where you have no worries, where ultimately you know like things are good. My life is good. I don't, I'm not worried about the future. I'm not worried about what's happening right now. I am, I'm at peace. I'm good. 
I, for me, I'm so full of fear and anxiety, and I'm constantly worried about what could happen and what's going to take place. This just sounds amazing to me, is that I could experience this just satisfaction, that I am totally fulfilled. Whatever the rest of my life may look like, I'm good. I am so far from that, it's, it's embarrassing. As a pastor, I'm like embarrassed by how far away from that I, I really am. But see, the scripture tells us that it's only by coming to know our Savior and resting in that relationship that we can be totally satisfied and fulfilled. And here's why I think most of us are not like that. Because there's a lot of us who are Christians, we've been Christians, we're, we're living the Christian life, and when you talk about being totally satisfied, it's like, that is so not me. I'm so far away from that. I think part of the problem is, is because we really hedge our bets as Christians. See, we say, yes, I believe Jesus is my savior and ultimately he will fulfill me and that's who's gonna make me satisfied and so we theologically affirm it and we would say it. And yet, we really believe that we will be fulfilled if we have Jesus and a spouse or a career or our own house or some money or we think, yeah, Jesus is great, and ultimately that's what's going to make me happy. But if I have Jesus and a house, think how really happy I'm going to be. But see, the scripture doesn't say like, okay, um, you, what's going to make you happy is Jesus and. Jesus and. No, no, no. The scripture says what's going to make you happy is Jesus only. There is no hedging your bets. There is no, I'll have Jesus and some other things, and then I'll be truly happy. It's, I will have Jesus, and if I have other things, it, it doesn't matter because it, my, my fulfillment is independent of those things. See, and again, I'm not claiming that I've got this, but I do know that the scripture says when our hearts, when in our heart of hearts, when we truly believe that Jesus is all we need to be satisfied, and we truly believe that he is everything that we need in order to be fulfilled in this life, no matter what happens, that's when we will truly find the satisfaction that we're looking for. I've met people where I don't think they're, they're totally there, but man, they, they were so much further than I was. My grandpa was one of those folks. He wasn't a super successful guy. I think he lived a really great life and he loved the Lord. But every time people sat down with him, people would come and he was an accountant, but people would come in for counseling to his office all the time, which was hilarious to me. People would be crying and I'm like, why are they crying about finance? You know, like, who cares? You'll balance the books, you know? Like, what's the big deal? No, 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 because here's what was great about him is he had this incredible peace and joy where you could just tell when you sat down with him, it doesn't matter what was happening in his life, even at the end of his life as he was battling cancer, it was just like, I'm good. I'm satisfied. I'm fulfilled. I, you know, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have a whole lot of money. I don't have a whole lot uh, that, I can, that I can lean on and rely on. But I know God's going to figure it out because that's all I need. And I think about him and I go, if I could just be, I just want to be that so badly. I just want to have that peace where it doesn't matter what's going on in my life, I'm good. Because I know if I've got Jesus, I'm fine. And it sounds, it almost sounds like a little bit corny when you say, you know, like, if I'm G I got Jesus, I'm good. And it's like, but I really do want to, I want to feel that. I want to believe that. I want that to be true. And so he, real quick, he, here's why I think is going to get us there. And I'll go through this really fast. As I think the only way that we can truly reach this place in which we say Jesus is all we need and I'm good is we have to go to war. We have to go to war with the two kingdoms that are battling within us. The kingdom of now in which we, is so natural and is so, uh, it seems so natural for us to live in and then the kingdom of God. 
is we have to go to war with these desires, with these assumptions, with these beliefs that we have. See, we're not fighting for our salvation because that's a gift. God has already given it to us. What we're fighting for is the benefits of this gift. What we're fighting for is the fulfillment and the satisfaction that can come along with this gift if we will activate it. It's kind of like um, if I gave you a computer for Christmas, which I will not, but if I gave you a computer for Christmas, right, that is a gift that is yours. It is 100% free. There's nothing you can do to earn it because I've given it to you. That's salvation. But you're going to have to work at understanding how this works. You're going to have to work at really uh, being able to use it to its fullest potential, you're going to have to learn the programs, and you're going to have to learn how to do certain things. And that's kind of what uh, a Christian life looks like, is salvation is free. You get it. It's a gift. You've got to do nothing to give it except for just give your life over to Christ. However, you're going to have to work hard at activating it, at learning how to really live out the Christian life and find the satisfaction and fulfillment. And so I think we have to go to war. And what does it take when we go to war? We have to be committed. You don't go to battle halfway. You don't go like, oh, I think I'll battle Tuesday. Wednesday, I'm off, however. No, 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 no. You're committed. You're in it to win it. There is no giving up. The other thing is that we have to have courage. From what I can tell, war seems like a pretty terrifying thing. And then there's people who go to war, and if you're hiding behind a rock, you're never going to win that war. You have to be courageous. You have to say, I am going to push ahead no matter what happens. That's the same with the Christian life is, you know what? Even my friends, my family don't understand. They don't get it. People mock me. I continue to push forward. We have to have power. If you have no power backing you, you will lose that war. And here's the great thing is, is we have the power of the Holy Spirit which comes upon us and says, I will activate a power that is beyond anything that you can produce so that you can continue to combat living in the kingdom of Mao and the kingdom of God. And finally, you have to, or excuse me, two more, submission to authority. If you look at any great army, it's not a free-for-all. It's not people running around like junior hires going like, ah! let's kill everybody, you know, like, no, 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 no. There is an authority system there in which you know who your leader is, and when your leader says, charge that mountain, you charge that mountain, and we have a clear commander here in Jesus, and we have to submit to his authority, and finally, a purpose. You can't win a war if you don't know why you're fighting. You have to have a fuel for this fire, and so our purpose is that we are fighting not for our salvation, but to activate this full Christian life to activate what it looks like to experience the satisfaction and the fulfillment that we so desire. And so really quick, last thought is this, is I think Christmas is two things. It's both the greatest gift that we could have ever received, that's salvation, that's God sending his son into the world, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. And yet, it's also the biggest challenge of our lives, is Jesus brought in this new kingdom into the world, and we get to choose whether we will live in that kingdom and experience all the benefits of living in that kingdom or if we will simply live in the kingdom of now. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for Christmas. Uh, thank you for this, this new kingdom that is at hand in which we get to live in, in which we get to be a part of. And so, Lord God, many of us have given our lives over to you and we know that, that you have saved us and that you have given us that incredible gift. And yet so many of us, especially myself, are consistently living in this kingdom of now. And it's no wonder that we're not experiencing the benefits of this gift that you have given us because we need to begin to live in your kingdom, under your values. And you tell us that when we do, we will find the thing that we've truly been longing for. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.